Proudly coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee, this is the Frontier Podcast. I'm your host, Ledge, and we are powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on iTunes and join the conversation at the Frontier Pod on Twitter. Giddy up! It only takes a few minutes of talking to Ravi Lachman before you realize this dude seriously loves engineering. That personality serves him well as a technical evangelist at Cisco company AppDynamics. Ravi's perspectives on production outages, operating what you build, and Netflixian organizational design all come back to one root idea. Keep learning and keep growing. In this episode, Ravi and Ledge talk engineering flavors, purpose-built tools, customer empathy, and much, much more. Hey, Ravi, thanks for joining us. Hey, Ledge. Hey, thanks for having me. Super excited to be uh, talking today at the Frontier Podcast. Very fun to have you. Can you give like a two or three minute intro, you know, for the, the listeners of your yourself and your, your work and your background? Oh, absolutely. So Robbie Lockman, uh, currently at a Cisco App Dynamics. I'm a technical evangelist. Uh, it's a really, really sweet job. I mean, it, from, uh, from my background, um, looking back over the last 10 years, I kind of rose through the ranks of engineering. Um, I, I was a principal engineer at two startups. Uh, and yeah, really enjoyed building distributed systems. So I started out in the federal sector, kind of moved around into the commercial sector, and, and then the uh, startups scene. Uh, most of my background has been in Java development, so I've been my passion's big web scale. Um, I large I like making applications that impact people, but I kind of stuck around the Java ecosystem, and really seeing the ecosystem and technologies that we use change. So something that I'm very passionate about. Um, actually, it's a lot of DevOps practices and reliability practices. It was kind of a shoehorn in for me uh, to get involved in those practices. Uh, looking through the course of my career, I used to be confined to my laptop and one application server. And now there's a term that Netflix calls uh, being a full cycle developer. It's what you, you build or you operate what you build, which a lot of, I would say, my development counterparts are going through right now that the expectations for us uh, is just increasing and the, the platforms are more disparate and uh, more purpose-built uh, than ever before. So really, that's how I kind of got into reliability and DevOps engineering because I was forced to <laughs> by employers in the past. But a lot to learn and always you know, the big benefit of being a technologist, you're always learning. So it's something I'm very passionate about. You know, just having jumped into a, a new year and having done a bunch yeah. of episodes, lots of interviews with yeah, yeah. leaders, I've noticed that there's this... Um, there's like a compression, a sort of convergence of the engineering and product functions is one trend that I'm seeing. And then if you think of this, you know, sort of broad horizontal line that is the, the whole cycle of engineering, you know, so move left, move right, security is moving left, QA is moving right, um, you know, and ultimately that line ends with the customer. And then there's this big push for engineers to have this customer empathy and even work on the support side, you know, and I'm just looking at, at the convergence and compression of that product function to customer line and how we're like this expectation that you know sort of our software engineers can do everything is is that does that resonate with what's happening in the field from from your perspective yeah i see that happening i mean let's take it back when i was uh, even when i was in university so i was a co-op at a large software firm and for a customer to get a hold of the engineering team was like a month-long process right i would not know who bought our software it was quite expensive and there was three levels of support um to get to the engineering team. So level four was you're at the engineering level at this point, but it's a, it's three or four week roadmap or dealing with support and 
maintenance before you get to the engineering team. Now, my previous firm I worked at, our customers could Slack me directly. They know my name, right? And so it's, it's really, it puts a more human face on the software, but also it makes it difficult to correlate this data. So it, 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 taking me, let's say I'm, I'm a single contributor or I'm on a team of people, it's just really correlating what's going on. It's, it, it, sometimes it's, if we're running in an Agile or a Scrum team, you know, we do plan for, for bugs, right? So we do say, hey, X amount of story points, or they might, they might not be story pointed, but we have X amount of time per sprint for bugs if something's an application. But having no one, as a pure software engineer or someone who's been focused on development, I don't like bugs, especially if I didn't write it, you know? So it's always like a dumpster fire, oh no. We have to look at multiple systems. We might have a monitoring solution or a logging solution or a distributed trace and say, what is actually going on? It really shifts focus away from the features we're being built. But going back to the harder question, yes, you know, there's a lot more expectation um, for, for engineers, especially developers, to be under this. It's a very Netflixian model. Um, you build, you operate what you build. And so who best to have knowledge about the system is the folks who write it. And then also because of a lot of DevOps practices, uh, the team lines are getting really blurred, right? So um, it's, it's all hands on deck sometimes. So, I mean, what are the trends that, uh, you know, a little bit off mic there, we were talking about, you know, hey, maybe this isn't the right thing always. You know, I think everybody wants to be, you know, Netflix and that gets thrown around a lot and, you know, or, or the way Facebook runs engineering, we got to do that or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it is. But I believe there are different flavors that work in different types of, of situations. And I wonder if, if there's some demarcation that you think about there, you know, in the technical, technical evangelist sort of seat, yeah. I mean, what's the right way to do it probably depends, right? Yeah, it's, it's definitely diagnosed to patient. You know, there's always not one w- white, right way to do something. It's going back to the Netflix or we want to be Facebook, we want to be Netflix. You know, the thing is when you, they are excellent bars of engineering. Uh, but the issue is if you compare like a typical, let's say enterprise versus Netflix, Netflix has maybe a handful of concerns at massive scale, right? So let's take a, a typical, let's maybe a bank or an insurance company. Um, they have thousands of concerns at varying scale, right? And so you're already spread a lot differently than having very straightforward concerns. And so having a build or operate what I was getting referred to, but an operate what you build uh, type of model might not work for everybody. Just because it, so going back to a, uh, a survey and something, it, it resonates, I guess, really well for the, the gun, uh, the IO, uh, the listeners is that it takes Stack Overflow, one of my favorite uh, surveys that they do is their annual insights. And so they just recently published their 2018 annual insights. And this actually is surprisingly comparing 16, 17, and 18. Uh, the number is actually increasing. It's kind of going counterintuitive because everyone's, you know, the communities at large are getting better, is that the average time for an engineer to become useful is pushing three months. And so for, for me to produce, let's say, viable, let's say, code that goes into production or, or produce viable features or even getting ramped on a team, you know, I get parachuted into a new customer. I need to learn the team dynamics. I need to learn the environment. I need to learn the, the, the build process. Uh, that's about three months. I mean, and that number has been kind of shifting from one to three to three plus months now, if you kind of look at the survey year to year. And, there, and there's definitely a reason for that. Uh, is that the platforms you have to interact with, they're all becoming more specialized just because of the scale we deal with. Um, it, to say, if you look at the, the bloom of the Cloud Native Foundation or Cloud Native Compute Foundation, uh, this is a host of open source projects powering Cloud Native apps, uh, is that the, the projects are becoming more granular in their feature and functionality because of just the scale we're dealing with. And so more purpose-built technology, 
the platforms becoming more disparate. It's just the number of platforms and tools we have to deal with are increasing. They're actually not decreasing. And that amount of time to learn multiple tools takes a long time. So it's, it's definitely, uh, there's pros and cons of doing it both, right? For other institutions that are not Netflix, it's extremely challenging to do that. Yeah, we have clients come in all the time, you know, that they've got this list of 15 different technologies that are all over the cycle, you mm-hmm. know, front end, back end, DevOps, CICD, uh, QA, you know, you got to write your tests in this package, you got to do this and that. And, um, and then demanding 100% match for, you know, the, the engineer who is also full time available, who has exactly that combination of things in a growing pool of tools, it becomes more and more difficult. And it takes you away, I think, from some of the idea of, um, you know, I mean, every, every engineer will probably tell you like, hey, you know, I'm smart, you know, I can pick things up fast. Um, clients typically don't want to hear like, well, <laughs> my dollar, but you know, at, at some point, I think that's going to crash and burn because, you know, you're gonna have to learn on, on the dollar because you're not going to get 15 perfect things matching, you know, so we, we kind of have, have to ask people, hey, um, you know, which things really matter the most? And where are you willing to have some some flex on that rack? Because otherwise, yeah. you're never going to find that you know unicorn, rock star, ninja, whatever you're looking for. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and just taking that a step further, like when I would hire people, most of the times I would hire people for a full time role, right? So I'm hiring an employee. I, I call it the uh, the the seventy thirty percent rule, right? And so, or I even might bend on it depending on the person. It's it's all about interest, right? If if you can prove, because no one's going to be perfect fit. Everybody's tools are different. Um, now, we are in a little more beneficial age because of open source. If you take it you know, 10 or 15 years ago, for me to get skills, let's say, an IBM WebSphere, I basically had to be working for IBM or a large company that bought those licenses. I couldn't afford them by myself. But now with the bloom of open source, I can basically go pick up a lot of technologies free in the community. I've learned them myself. But since going back to the point that there's so many pieces of moving parts out there, um, it's, it's, it's a two-part thing. Can we teach somebody something? Right? Is it going to be interesting for the engineer? Because I, there's a lot of smart people. People are most people are pretty good, and it's going to be. It's do they know enough, you know, not to get stressed out? And also, is it the main thing is the job fulfilling, right? Because they have to. Without learning, you're not being fulfilled. If I did the same thing every day, I would be very unfulfilled. I get another job, <laughs> you know. So that that's usually I say, hey, anything above like you say forty percent, they don't know. It might be they might struggle with the job a little bit, but. They're gaining skills. They bring a creative approach, especially folks who've done doing something for the first time. Their their approach might be more creative. There's tasks that I do, build tasks or test tasks. I've done hundreds of times. I'm pretty rigid. I'm not going to change. Like, oh, this is how I always did it. I used to make fun of people who did that, but after you've done it so many times, you turn to that person. And so they have a fresh pair of eyes to look at different problems. And that's why it's always good to get fresh eyes and keep the cycle uh, moving along. So our, our listeners always tell me that uh, we love, you know, uh, if not dumpster fire, you know, sort of big audacious failures that led to, you know, um, learnings. I wonder if, if from your, you know, vast resume there, you can think of any really excellent uh, crash and burn <laughs> rise from the ashes, you know, learning experience that you'd like to share. Oh, yeah. I mean, I had, I had, I had a lot of production outages, more, more than I would be. Actually, I had a lot, to be frank. Like, i that's why I'm not in production anymore. You know, that, that level of stress is uh, not there. But it, it, we're people, right? You know, a lot of the, when humans have to interact with a, a system, we only know it, it's, it's a term I like to call fog of development, right? So it's, it's a term, um, it, it comes from the fog of war, it's a military term. And so it has to do with situational awareness. And basically, what it translates to technology is like a change that you make 
you, you probably don't have situational awareness uh, along the lines to see, oh, what is this change going to impact you know, maybe one iteration or two iterations down? Um, in our technology world, going back to all the platforms, in a typical, let's say, as a product owner or previous product owner, I might own uh, less than 10 endpoints for a platform, right? You know, slash shopping cart, slash, you know, those are the big endpoints, but I own less than 10. And the application or platform itself for us to buy something or integrate something has hundreds. And so really knowing how, where you fit into the picture, you might go bigger with enterprise architecture, so these change control meetings or bigger with the other product owners. But really knowing that, uh, my, my greatest outage, I actually corrupted a database uh, for an investment bank I used to work at. And so it, the, the thing is, they pretty much lost a day of work because of uh, we were rolling out the next rendition. So we are in version one of the application. It was a big release, version two, right? So we retooled the platform. We changed the database provider. We changed the app server. It was, it was a big bang for the buck. Uh, we were going for gold, <laughs> right, as, as the application owner. And so if you can, the one thing I learned is that, you know, always kind of, uh, stick with it. Um, if you can programmatically corrupt something, you can programmatically uncorrupt something. <laughs> so I had a more senior person tell me that, saying, "Hey, man, you know what? It, well, we had a lot of duplicates in our database." Um, and he was like, "Hey, you know, we, we kind of see how they got in. We, there's ways for us to undo it, uh, but if you inserted it like this, you can definitely un like, delete it like this. So it's not pleasant, but you learn a lot. You know, at two in the morning, it's like, oh, we want to be over. Just delete the database. No, <laughs> you need it. You know, you can't restart all this stuff." So. Yeah, business users love that when you know, hundreds of people are sitting idle at their desks waiting for you to uncorrupt their database. No, they do not. <laughs> Thousands of people, yeah, it's like, oh boy. Oh boy. Yeah, yeah, they're watching the, the dollars tick up like the national debt clock. You know? <laughs> so, I always wonder what that's like, you know, when, you know, now it's, we're all so ubiquitously dependent on these upstream and downstream types of apps. You know, you run your business on other people's stuff who are running their business on other people's stuff who are running their business on other people's stuff, you know, and then every once in a while, you know, an entire region of AWS goes down and yep. we all go, well, we can't do anything. Yeah. So, you know, let's actually take a breath now. Yeah. <laughs> I think of it as like the macro services architecture. You know, we're all really building on somebody else's stuff and, and in the way that that's enabled a uh, startup and in rapid growth environment it's also enabled us or really made us dependent upon you know the fates of uh, you know events of God out there in the <laughs> in the universe right the, oh, know, yeah. there's an earthquake or whatever there's no actual complete reliability scenario and I'm, I'm sure enterprise clients run into stuff like that all the time Oh, absolutely. Like the, the big, big outage two years ago was S3 and AWS had an outage and pretty much like half internet like stopped working uh, just because um, folks are so reliant on that, uh, that type of uh, storage, right, for, for their sites or for digital properties or omni-channel experiences. Like it was even Amazon themselves are, they've written several services to be kind of cyclically dependent on S3 and there's even the dash. The most funny part was their dashboard wasn't even available to tell you the availability because it was hosted on S3. <laughs> so it, was, it was painful, but you're right. Like a big going back to another practice, um, it's called SRE, site reliability engineering, or just reliability engineering in general. It, it, the adage is true: don't put all your eggs in one basket. You know, it, but that's expensive, right? Having a hybrid cloud, uh, you know, let's say, strategy. 
and actually pulling it off is quite expensive, right? So and having the ability to move workloads around, um, having workloads that are not tightly coupled to a particular vendor or infrastructure, it's, it's extremely difficult. But a lot of what's going on right now with containerization and other kind of orchestration platforms are really making that more ubiquitous. But taking that back to our original conversation, there's more tooling I have to learn. So my humble beginnings as a Java developer, now I have to learn Docker or I have to learn Mesos or I have to learn an orchestrator. I have to learn you know, how do we set up our hybrid cloud setup. Is my workload resilient enough to be transferred from point A to point B without losing any data? And that's difficult. I mean, that's really pushing you know, what a distributed systems engineer or a Java developer would be able to do. And that's why the foggy development comes back, right? <laughs> How does anybody have a good idea what the entire system looks like? So, yeah. Oh yeah, no doubt. And the, you know, the orders of magnitude, more abstraction, you know, like where you, it's not that long ago that those of us with some age in the industry could remember writing on bare metal. <laughs> I mean, and it's just, you know, now you're just, or, you know, you're sort of abstracting out to first it was, you know, cloud and then it was now it's containers and now there's serverless and, you know, on and on and on. And before you know it, there's 165 different AWS services you need to know how to use and, you know, thousands and thousands of uh, pages of documentation. So, you know, I think it's like our abilities have become so complex and interesting and we can do so many things. Um, but the educational burden of, of staying relevant and staying a, a professional you know, certainly has has increased at the same orders of magnitude. And I wonder at what level the abstraction starts to, uh, you know, become a, a burden and there might be some, you know, compression or some uh, consolidation in the oh, space. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I, I get to, I have, I'm pretty fortunate with the job I have to attend a lot of industry events. So I was at reInvent, KubeCon, SpringOne. I was at a bunch of events last year, and there's, it's surprising to hear when people do things kind of counter what the event's talking about. So um, I was at, I'm trying to remember what event it was. Uh, it was a DevOps Days event in Washington, D.C. And so uh, you, you run into a lot of people, just, this just says government on their tag. You know, they're not going to tell you their name. It just says government because they probably work for an intelligence community uh, type of company or type of organization, sorry. And uh, this one person came up and, you know, we, the, I was working at a, a, a particular container orchestration company and came up and started talking to us. It's like, oh, we run, we run everything on bare metal because we want speed. And it's like, yes, <laughs> yes, you're the first person who comes up and talks about, you know, we're really concerned about the abstraction slowing us down just because of the, the amount of speed and scale that they require. Even the money wasn't really a problem for them because they put on bare metal, but speed was a big concern for them. So... It, you're right. The more the more abstraction something is, it's the old, this is you know, old computer science principles apply here. The, the more abstraction you have, the more firepower you need. So the more layers you have. Oh, I'm running a guest op. I've started bare metal, but then I might have a host operating system, a guest operating system, a container orchestrating system, and then even my container orchestrator might be providing me a serverless infrastructure like Knative. And so it's the layers just keep adding on, you know, you're, you're trading in speed and ubiquity for performances. Yeah, but that's, that's the march we take <laughs> and compute. Yeah. And you got to run your, you know, sort of containerized microservice, the entire thing on your local machine and you got your MacBook all of a sudden 64 gigs of Ram just to load your eight containers. And you know, at some point yeah. it becomes like, wait a second, what happened to the client server or the cloud? You know, you're, you're just running a local copy of the, the cloud in order to even, you know, deploy something. So, yeah. you know, we, we run into a lot of uh, cases like that where 
you know, it, even a, a super powered engineering machine gets crushed by the just setting up the local environment. Oh yeah. It's been a common trend. I would say this is so funny. Like probably if I'm counting the time I was in school as an engineer, like uh, being a co-op probably 14, 15 years ago, my machines were always being crushed. It never stopped being crushed. <laughs> just the amount of uh, amount of stuff I'm able to do on it. It's more, but like consistently they're always crushed. <laughs> I learned to program on a Spark terminal. So <laughs> back back in my day, we had 512 megabytes of my right, team. and nobody ever knew what you'd do with 8K of RAM. Right, <laughs> so, yeah. we had less than a gig to start with. Now, when we hit that gig barrier, it was like, whoa, two gigabytes, <laughs> whoa. So, Robbie, for last 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 question, um, yeah. maybe give some advice to the uh, you know our freelance engineers out there who are trying to make an impact, large company, small company. You know, what do you think of the the keys to success as a a technologist in the field now? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's you know it, it's always always keep learning, and I might be more prone to this. I always like I might have changed jobs a little bit more quicker than some of my contemporaries because I just like getting more experience. Uh, I always enjoy hearing how other people do things, right? And so I, I never, I never like being the smartest person in the room, never, because I want to learn. I want to learn from somebody else. That's always the greatest way to learn. And, and for the listeners and for the folks that are part of the gun community, um, they're doing the right thing, right? They're expanding their horizons by being able to learn very quickly uh, from other technology, other folks, other industries, uh, domain experience is invaluable, right? So uh, let's say if I had a year at gun, you know, I might look at two, six months or maybe two or three projects of, you know, four to six months a pop. I might say, you know what? I want to learn the, in the insurance industry right now. Let me go learn valuable business domain knowledge from what an insurance company has, or let me go to a healthcare company or let me go to a media company. So learning those domains are invaluable. It's like being a kid at the candy store. You have the ability, all of those, Particular industries are looking for folks to help fill a gap. And definitely don't forget to learn about the business domain that you're in because it'll, it'll come back and help you out. And being a freelancer, that's perfect. You can you know, come in and come out and learn a lot just for a period of time. Great insights. Thanks, Rob. It's good to have you on, man. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Ledge. Awesome to be here. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io slash podcast to get in touch, and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.